Let me just say how encouraged I have been this week as we explored a, a very significant passage last week and learned that God displays his glory both in the mundane and the miraculous. And I have received reports through emails and personal phone conversations and even on Facebook about how many of you are seeing and savoring the glory of God both in the mundane and the miraculous. Is that exciting or what? Now remember, as Robert uh, Gottfried has, has wisely st- stated, that God tends to uh, reveal himself primarily in the ordinary. That's something we need to get used to. Is uh, I can say we're not going to see miracles every day of our lives. And in one sense, you could say, well, Pastor, every, every day is a miracle. Every time I breathe, it's a miracle. We understand that. But we're talking about the things that are breathtaking, the things that are out of the ordinary. While God will reveal his glory in those occasions, he primarily works in the realm of the mundane. And so we need to get used to, to seeing and savoring God in those mundane moments. Well, today I want to invite you to turn with me to John's Gospel as we look at John chapter 9 and begin reading in verse 13. This is a longer passage than we normally will deal with, but I see this as a unit of thought and would like to, um, Lord willing, deal with it as, as one unit of thought today. Would you stand with me as we read John chapter 9, verses 13 to 34? This is what the word of the Lord says. They, speaking of the crowd brought the Pharisees the man who had been formerly blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already. And you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciples, but we are the disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, I am quite confident this morning that when 
The former slave trader, John Newton, penned the hymn, Amazing Grace, that he had no idea that it would become the most beloved hymn ever written in the history of the church. This hymn, which was written in 1779, is not only sung in churches, it is sung at baseball fields, it's sung in football stadiums, it is, it is sung in parks and other public gatherings. If you hum the tune, Amazing Grace, there's a very strong possibility that a complete stranger will hum along with you. The chord structure is simple. It's easy to play. It's easy to sing. This is a tune that is known all around the world. When I travel to Belarus, you will hear the Belarusians singing Amazing Grace. And while I only recognize the word Bog, God, I do know they're singing Amazing Grace. I recognize the tune. But it is certainly not the tune, you see, that has captured the hearts and the minds of people all over the world for the past 230 plus years. What captivates us about Amazing Grace is not the tune, but the content of the song. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm fine, found, was blind, but now I see. In that first verse of Amazing Grace, in 26 words, John Newton invites sinners to stand amazed at sovereign grace, God's sovereign grace, to find satisfaction in the very sound of grace, to affirm the sinfulness of sin, to accept the reality that apart from grace, I am a wretch, that apart from grace, you all are wretched. In 26 words, John Newton invites worshipers to confess their former lost state and to glory in the sweet reality of the salvation that is theirs in Christ, to affirm that before Christ saved them, they were blind, they were lost, they were without hope, they were without God in the world, they were spiritually dead, they were rendered spiritual slaves, utterly impotent, without power. Now here is where it gets really, really fascinating. Honestly, this is interesting stuff because I can guarantee, I can see it in the, the looks of some of your faces. I can guarantee that some of you right now, as we utter the 26 words of the first verse of Amazing Grace, some of you, indeed many of you, are filled with holy delight. When you think, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You affirm with the former slave trader that you indeed were a wretch apart from grace. That before grace found you, you were miserable. You were hopeless. You were helpless. And you were a sinner on the fast track to the gates of hell. And so you delight in the reality of grace. The reason this gets interesting is because not everyone here this morning will delight in the reality of grace. I can also tell you that some people here are not delighted in this message in any way, shape, or form. They hear the message of amazing grace, and the sound of amazing grace is not sweet to them. The sound of amazing grace is sour. You're downright disgusted with it. And I've had this conversation with people. You've heard the stories of, of, of people all around the world who want to remove the word wretch. You see, people in our culture don't want to be considered a worm apart from grace. But what this hymn teaches is that apart from grace, you are wretched. You are worm-like. You are depraved. 
you are without hope and without God. And so what I hear from so many people is that I am offended that Newton would call me a wretch. I am a successful businessman. I am a successful businesswoman. How dare Newton refer to me as a wretch? I am offended that he would imply that I am lost without grace. How dare this 18th century man say that there's one way to live and the other ways are erroneous and odious to God? I am offended that he would imply that hell is my eternal destiny apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the title of the message this morning is Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. And I want to pose a very simple question. And the question is this, how shall we respond to the grace of God that is displayed in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we look at John chapter 9, there are three interesting players in this particular passage. The players include the Pharisees, of course, and then there's a small role for the parents of the previously uh, born blind man, the blind man that Jesus healed. And then the third character that's on display in this passage is the beggar himself. The one who was born blind, the one who Jesus uh, spit in the mud or spit in the dirt and made some mud and put it on his eyes and said, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And the man did it and he was healed. I want to have you focus in like a laser beam this morning on the Pharisees and on the beggar in particular. And we will contrast their responses to the grace of God which is displayed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Father, uh, as we look at the Pharisees this morning and contrast them with the beggar, the one who was previously blind, who was healed by the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that your spirit would help us to see the vivid contrast between these people. God, I pray that we would see uh, exactly what emerges from the hearts of the Pharisees And that we would also see what emerges from the heart of this beggar. God, I pray that you would do a good work today. I pray that you would encourage your people. I pray that we would continue to see and savor the glory of God, both in the mundane and the miraculous. God, I pray that today we would leave uh, rejoicing as the people of God. Because we have been instructed by your spirit. We have been edified. We've been challenged and we have been encouraged. Again, will you do a good work? We trust you to do it for your glory and the namesake of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning I want to begin by having you to take, to, to take a few minutes to look at the stubborn unbelief of the Pharisees. The stubborn unbelief of the Pharisees. After the blind beggar was healed, we're told that the neighbors or the crowd, as I've referred to them, of the man uh, or around the man brought the beggar to the Pharisees. And since Jesus healed the beggar on the Sabbath, the Pharisees are interested in questioning the beggar. So, quite frankly, they can dig up some dirt on the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we find here in this narrative, what we find here in this story is an interrogation of sorts, which not only included the man who had been healed by Jesus, but for a brief moment includes his parents as well. Now, I want you to see that the stubborn unbelief of the Pharisees is multifaceted. It is multifaceted. It goes deeper than you probably ever imagined. Their unbelief is layered, if you will. And there are at least four ways that this unbelief is expressed in this story. And of course, please understand that all of their unbelief is directed at one person. It's directed at the Lord Jesus Christ. So as the Pharisees struggle with unbelief, I, I see them as, as, as having this, this antipathy toward grace. It's what I like to refer to as an aversion to grace. Because what has happened 
just a moment prior was a man had been born blind and then he comes to the point where Jesus heals him and that should have caused rejoicing. There should have been a party the moment the man was healed. Yet what did the Pharisees do? Oh, he couldn't have possibly been born blind. It's not possible that Jesus healed this man and so they interrogate the man. They interrogate his parents. Notice four ways where this aversion to grace comes to the service. First, notice that they doubt his divine identity. That is to say, the Pharisees doubt the divine identity of Jesus. Now, before we look at the specifics of their unbelief that concerns his identity, I want you to notice a little word that you would be tempted to skip over. Please don't skip over it. It emerges in verse 15. So the Pharisees, again. Did you ever think that your pastor would encourage you to highlight the word again? It's not an imperative. It doesn't appear to be an important word, but I think it's a very important word. The word again. According to John, this was not the first time that the Pharisees played the role of the Gestapo or the KGB with this beggar. And so stubborn unbelief we're looking at is persistent unbelief. It's not the first time they struggle with unbelief. I look at it this way. When we consider the Pharisees, their unbelief is like the dripping of a faucet. Drip, drip, drip. And you lay awake at night in your bed at 3 o'clock in the morning. I do not want to put my clothes on and get up and look all over for the drip that I'll probably never find anyway. Or the unbelief of the Pharisees is like that fly that was tormenting me two nights ago. Two o'clock in the morning. So I get my Kindle out. Right? And I'm reading. I'm pretty sure I'm not filled with the Spirit at this moment because I'm going to kill someone. The fly! And wouldn't you know it, I'm reading my Kindle and this fly, and I'm not kidding you, it was, it was as big as a horse. It landed right on my Kindle. And I was like, yes, got him. But now my Kindle has guts all over it. This is what the Pharisees' unbelief is like, the dripping of a faucet, the fly that you cannot catch. It goes on and on and on. And we've already seen in previous studies how the Pharisees have doubted the divine identity of Jesus. I went through and backtracked in the Gospel of John and notice all the different places. I won't take time to uncover them now, but you can do it for yourself. Walk through John and see how many times they doubted the identity of Jesus. In this passage, the Pharisees reason as follows. Jesus cannot possibly be from God. He can't possibly possibly be from God because he did a miracle on the Sabbath. Forgetting that Jesus invented the Sabbath. You see what they're doing? This self-righteousness that is a part of sinful unbelief slowly rises to the surface. And so because Jesus does a miracle which glorifies the Father, because he does this miracle on the Sabbath, they doubt his identity. Of course, realize this, the Pharisees are not the only one in redemptive history to doubt the identity of Jesus. In several I was going to say weeks, more like months or maybe years. When we get to John chapter 18, I know you're thinking, yeah, it'll be years. When we get to John chapter 18, we'll see, for instance, that Pilate, Pontius Pilate, he doubts the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, what is truth? As the way, the truth, and the life looks him in his beady eyes. He doubts his identity, and he's nine inches from him. 
And so the Pharisees doubt his identity. Pontius Pilate doubts his identity. Every Muslim on this planet doubts the identity of Jesus. You say, wait a minute, don't the Muslims believe that Jesus was a prophet? Indeed. They believe he was a prophet, but they reject the notion that Jesus is God's son. They reject the notion that Jesus is the second member of the Godhead. They reject the notion that Jesus has existed from all eternity. That he is, in fact, eternally God. And so the Pharisees, along with Muslims and Pontius Pilate and some people in this auditorium today, they doubt his divine identity. There's something else that occurs as the Pharisees have this aversion to grace. They doubt, secondly, his divine character. The Pharisees devout, they, they doubt the divine character of Jesus. Look at verse 16, in the latter half of verse 16. First they say, the man can't possibly be from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But then another group of Pharisees says, how can this man who is a, can you even read the words? How can this man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a, the Greek word is schism. We all know what a schism is. That's something God hates. It's a division. And so group A of the Pharisees said Jesus can't be God because he performed a miracle on the Sabbath. The other group said, no, he's a sinner. And sinners can't possibly be unique and claim to be God. And of course, they're both wrong. Verse 24 says the same thing. We'll get there in a moment, but in verse 24... Notice, for the second time, they called the man who had been blind. Mark the word again in verse 16. We have this persistency in unbelief. And they tell the healed man, the beggar, give glory to God. That sounds like pretty good theology, does it not? But then they say, we know this man is a sinner. That's not good theology. Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner when all along the Pharisees should have known that the scriptures declare that Jesus is divine. You say, what if those scriptures had not been written? Jesus himself declared himself to be God. He declared that he was divine. In Colossians 1, 19 and 20, Paul the Apostle says, for in him, that is Jesus Christ, All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Later in chapter two of Colossians, Paul says, for in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In John chapter one, the first time we open this gospel to study it together as a church family, we read these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through Him, that is, Jesus. And without Him, that is, Jesus, not anything was made that was made. In the 19th century, Charles Haddon Spurgeon penned his own personal catechism that he used to instruct people. I have found over the years, and Chris, I don't know if you found the same, but uh, people in our tradition, people in our, the theological stream that we paddle in, they hear the word catechism and a wall goes up. Your catechism, whoop, 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 that's what the Catholics do. Yeah, it's true, the Catholics do it, and it's the wrong catechism, trust me. However, the word catechism just comes from the Greek word katecheo. It's, it's, it's kind of fun to say, catecheo. And here's what it means, to instruct. That's all it means. So a catechism is a, is a learning device. It's a learning tool. It's a learning aid. And so Spurgeon writes this catechism in the form of question and answer. So for instance, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number one, what is the chief end of man? Answer, the chief end of man 
is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Here's one of the questions that Spurgeon poses. Question, who is the redeemer of God's elect? Answer, the only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal son of God became man and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. That's quite a sentence. That's what we refer to as good theology. That is orthodox theology, affirming that Jesus is fully God, fully man, and he will be unto all eternity. What do the Pharisees do? They doubt that statement that Spurgeon penned almost 1,900 years later. They doubt the statements that emerge in sacred scripture. They doubt the statements that Jesus makes concerning himself. They doubt his divine character. There's a third way that they manifest their unbelief. It emerges in verse 18 and 19. They doubt his divine deeds. They doubt his divine deeds. And so their skepticism, as we talked about last week, it continues. Verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been born blind, speaking of the blind beggar, and that he had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? And how does he now see? Notice in verse 20, his parents confirm the identity of their son and that he was, in fact, born blind. Now, I want you to think very carefully now about the essence of the unbelief in the Pharisees here. What they are doing as they doubt his divine deeds is they doubt that Jesus has the ability to heal. They doubt that he has the ability to heal. I have to confess something to you. I have been in conversations with people when someone says to me that Joe or Martha or whoever it is has the ability to heal people, what do you think? Honestly, the way I've responded 100% of the time is I frankly doubt it. What's the difference? Well, Joe or Martha or Sister Sue is not God. And I believe that that gift of healing that emerged in the first century with the apostles has since gone by the wayside as we now have a completed canon. Does that mean God never heals? Of course not. God heals every day. But does someone have the unique gift of healing? That's an unrelated but also related question. What concerns us here is the Pharisees' unbelief of Jesus the second member of the Godhead, his ability to heal, they say it's not possible. He can't do it. And so to devout the divine deeds of Jesus is to heap a great insult upon him. The Pharisees have hearts here, you see, that are drowning in unbelief. And it's a persistent unbelief. It's an incessant unbelief. It's an insidious unbelief and it's becoming more and more evident to everyone around them including the man who was healed notice the fourth way they manifest this sinful unbelieving heart in verses 28 and 29 we see that they doubt his divine mission they doubt his divine mission they reviled him speaking of the man who had been healed they reviled the beggar saying notice the sarcasm that You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. I want you to mark the word revile. The word revile comes from a Greek word that means to slander or to abuse. To slander or abuse. Now, I want to share a story that I don't think I've ever shared with anyone before. But I had a teacher when I was in high school who came up to me and he told me, guess what I did? I said, what did you do, Mr. Kylet? And he said, I had a chance to see the space shuttle. And I don't know why I did it. I didn't believe it. 
So you saw the space shuttle over the weekend. Yeah, sure. And I literally, young people, please don't ever do this. I went like this. I'd never done anything like that before in my life. Well, how many of you know what my dad did for a living during those days? Yeah, superintendent of the school district. I think he was assistant at that time. Uh, Guess what? He heard about it. Yeah, it was really fun. (laughs) Now, did I revile my teacher? Probably not, but I really insulted him. Basically, I said, fooey on you, I don't believe you. And that's what's happening in a more intense way in verses 28 and 29. They revile the beggar who they freely admit now is Jesus' disciple. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, the same word emerges where we see that the men around Jesus revile him. They, they heal or they, they hurl heaps of insults upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And what emerged in my heart is this. This is standard fare that comes out of the unconverted heart. The unconverted heart, by nature and by definition, reviles the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're not a follower of Jesus today, that may offend you. You say, no, you don't understand, Pastor. I I love Jesus. I just choose not to follow him. I believe in Jesus. I just choose to live life on my terms. Well, if that's where you stand today... You spit in Jesus' face. You revile him. Because there's two kinds of people in the world. There are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ who love him and long to obey him and stumble along the way, but always turn back to the cross work of Jesus and ask for forgiveness of all their sins. And then there is the the unbeliever, the person who says, Jesus, I revile you. I revile you to your face. I don't like your law. I don't like your word. I don't like your cross. I don't like anything about you. But I give lip service to all my friends and tell my friends that I believe in you. Frankly, that person is a believing unbeliever. That person is lost. And that's what we see emerge in the heart of each of these Pharisees. They not only hurl their sin on the beggar, they question Jesus' very mission. Even though Jesus over and over again told them where he was from. Over and over again, Jesus said, my father sent me. My father sent me. But they refused to listen. They refused to believe. They are utterly locked in by their stubborn unbelief. How do we sum up the stubborn unbelief of the Pharisees? Well, we've already seen that their unbelief is persistent. We've seen that their unbelief is reoccurring. We also see that their unbelief is utterly self-righteous. It is all focused on me and what I can receive. It's self-righteous. Their unbelief continues to gain momentum in this story. Like a runaway freight train, their sinful unbelief continues to pick up speed, leading them further and further and further away from God and closer and closer to eternal judgment in hell. I want you to see that their unbelief was also rooted in pride. Now, in our culture, pride is not always seen as a bad thing, but the Word of God says this, that God opposes The proud man. He opposes the proud man, but he gives grace to the humble. We see the Pharisees as consumed with pride. God opposes them. We see the blind beggar who Jesus healed, a humble man who simply tells the Pharisees the story. He tells the Pharisees that Jesus spit in the dirt, put it on his eyes, sent him to the pool of Siloam. He washed, and now he sees again. Or seized for the first time, rather. The unbelief of the Pharisees, you see, led them away from God. A verse that is etched onto my heart, and I trust that it will, it will be etched onto yours as well, is Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, where the writer of Hebrews says, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away 
from the living God. That's what's happening with the Pharisees. They are turning away from the living God. Finally, their unbelief showed exactly where they stood with God. It's very apparent. Isaiah 29, 13 says this, they draw near with their mouth. And you see them doing that in verse 28 and 29. We are students of Moses. They draw near with their mouth. They honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. By way of application this morning, I want to ask, how are you like a Pharisee? What are some signs that you may be living like a Pharisee? There's a few signs that come to mind. The first is that you live like a Pharisee when you rationalize your unbelief. This is something I see a lot. A person rationalizes their unbelief. They're an unbelieving person, and they say things like, well, just because I didn't grow up in the religious tradition you grew up in, or just because I don't live in the geographical location you live in, whatever it is, they rationalize their unbelief to make them feel better when all along they're living like a Pharisee. Second, you live like a Pharisee when you compartmentalize your unbelief. That is to say, you believe on Sunday but you fail to believe on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And then on Sunday, you believe again. You compartmentalize your unbelief. Third, you live like the Pharisees when you stubbornly refuse to believe in Jesus. That is to say, if you say you believe in him, but you refuse to trust in him, you are no better off than one of these self-righteous Pharisees. Now, the thought occurred to me, how can Christians then live like the Pharisees? You can live like the Pharisees when you trust your own resources instead of the inexhaustible resources that are yours in Christ. I think we can all say guilty as charged. Today, I live in my own strength. Today, I abandon the need for prayer. Today, I jettison the word of God. Today, I do it on my own. And when we abandon the inexhaustible resources that are ours in Christ, we live for that moment on that day like those teachers of the law, the Pharisees. Well, I want to move from the stubborn unbelief of the Pharisees to something a bit more positive. I want to have you turn your attention to the single-minded faith now of the beggar. And the contrast of unbelief between the Pharisees and the beggar is crisp and vivid and sharp and very instructive. Now, last week, we learned something about this man who had been healed. We learned that the beggar possessed an, an uncritical faith. He just did what Jesus told him. When Jesus said, go and wash in the pool, he didn't say, uh, well, let me go finish my duty around the corner. He didn't say, well, let me talk to my parents. He didn't say, let me talk to my physician. It was about face to the pool of Siloam. It was an uncritical faith. Additionally, we learn that it, he had an obedient faith. He had a hopeful faith and he had a humble faith. And to cap it all off, I love this. He had a simple faith, a simple faith. But in this passage, we learn a bit more about this very interesting man. We see that unlike the Pharisees, he doesn't have an aversion to grace. He's not like this. Rather, he is attracted to grace. He is inspired by grace. He has a passion to learn about the grace of God. He loves it. And there are a couple of ways that it happens. First in verse 15. We see that he's attracted to grace as he articulates the deeds of Jesus. In verse 15, he articulates the deeds of Jesus. The Pharisees again asked him how he received his sight, verse 15. He said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. I mean, does it get any more basic than that? Mud, I washed. And now I see. And the thought occurred to me. Shouldn't we, too, affirm the deeds of Jesus? When we come face to face with the grace of God that is ours in Christ, it 
should not should should it not embolden us to tell people about Jesus? This is what Pastor Ken was referring to a few moments ago to simply open our mouths and tell people about the miracles of Jesus. Well, what if they don't believe? Who cares? What if they don't like what they hear? Who cares? Let's tell them about the miracles of Jesus. Let's tell them about the teaching of Jesus. Let's tell people how Jesus loved people around him, how he loved the children, how he loved the Pharisees, how he loved the Roman soldiers, how he loved people that came around him despite some of the horrible things that he faced. And so this beggar articulates Jesus' deeds. Second, he affirms Jesus' identity. Look at verse 17. They said again to the blind man, by the way, what's the key word there? Again, you see this persistent unbelief. They they said it again to the blind man. What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he simply says, he is a prophet. We too should affirm the identity of Jesus Christ. And what struck me as I studied this passage We know so much more now about Jesus than the beggar knew. Even though the beggar was six inches from Jesus, now we have so much more knowledge of who Jesus was and is than the man who looked at him face to face. And so when we experience the grace of God, it should motivate us to tell people about his identity, that he has existed from all eternity. I've said it probably dozens of times. I love to tell my Mormon friends that Jesus Christ exists from all eternity. I love to tell my Jehovah's Witnesses friends that Jesus Christ has existed from all eternity and will exist to all eternity. What if they don't like it? That is a bummer. It's the truth. And so we tell our friends about all the attributes of God, that Jesus Christ shares all the attributes with the Father and with the Spirit. Does he not? He is merciful. He is loving. He is long-suffering. As my grandfather said, long-suffering. The Father's long-suffering. The Son's long-suffering. The Spirit's long-suffering. Jesus is loving Jesus is just. Jesus is wrathful. Jesus possesses all the attributes of God the Father and God the Spirit. We tell our friends that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. We tell our friends that he is God in the flesh, that he is the Messiah with a capital M. We tell our Jewish friends that Jesus is the Messiah with a capital M, the long-awaited Messiah that most Jews in our culture today long for and wait for. They have missed him. And so we tell our Jewish friends that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. I believe that Jewish people long for that reality. I met a Jewish woman on a plane from JFK in New York City, all the way to Seattle. And once she learned that I believed with all my heart that Jesus was the Messiah, I couldn't get her off my back. She wanted to talk the whole way. Isn't that interesting? This is back to what Pastor Ken said. We We just utter a sentence. Do you know the God of the universe? Who do you say Jesus is? What I have experienced and what the scripture tells me is that Jesus is the Messiah. Notice thirdly that the the beggar is astounded by Jesus' grace. He's astounded by Jesus' grace. And you will recognize a few of these lines. And this is where John Newton was inspired to write Amazing Grace. He answered the, the, the beggar who was previously blind said, Whether he is a sinner, that is whether Jesus is a sinner... I have no idea. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. For all of us who are followers of Jesus, should not this be our response to God's 
grace that is revealed in Christ, absolute astonishment. No entitlement, no expectations, just sheer astonishment. Being astounded by grace is what led John Newton to pen those words. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Listen, if you were a follower of Jesus Christ, remember what the Bible says about your ability to see. At one time, we were all blind, but the Holy Spirit miraculously gave us sight. Our hearts were hard as rock. And the Holy Spirit transformed a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. At one time, we were enslaved to sin and we were liberated. So many evangelicals these days teach that it is a, it is a teamwork between the Holy Spirit and the sinner to come to the point of regeneration. Nothing could be further from the truth. The doctrine of monergistic regeneration teaches us this. It is the Spirit alone who regenerates the sinful heart. It is the Spirit alone who wakes up the sinner. It is the Spirit alone who changes the heart of stone into a heart of flesh. And therefore, the Holy Spirit gets the glory for that amazing work which resounds and echoes to God the Son and God the Father. I want you to see a final mark of this man's faith. And that is seen in verse 33 that the beggar is assured, he is assured of Jesus' works. In verse 33, he says, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. What the man means is this. He certainly did something. He healed me. He gave me eyes to see. He testifies that he is God through the back door. It's as if he confirms what Jesus said back in verse 3. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but the works of God might be displayed in him. And so we see that while he was blind, the glory of God was displayed in the mundane blindness. And when Jesus healed him, the glory of God was displayed in his sight. Now he could see. What do the Pharisees do? They doubt that he was ever blind to begin with. Go to his parents. They doubt that Jesus healed him. They reject the glory of God and the grace of God in the mundane. They reject the glory of God and the grace of God in the miraculous. And that level of unbelief heaps a great deal of insult on the God of the Bible. What is the truth point? Very simple and very short, that every person should respond to God's grace with delight. Don't miss now how the Pharisees responded to the man who exercised simple faith, who himself responded to the grace of God with delight. Look at verse 34. They answered him, and notice it's just dripping with sarcasm. You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? We have advanced degrees in theology. You are a blind beggar. You would teach us. Instead of delighting in grace, the Pharisees despised grace. Instead of being drawn to grace, the Pharisees detested grace. But there is a proper response to the grace of God that is revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the beggar, I think, gives us a wonderful case study for how to do it. When the beggar heard the sound of amazing grace, it was like music to his ears. When the beggar experienced the grace of God displayed in Jesus, he was drawn to Jesus. He was attracted to Jesus. And that led to the worship of Jesus. When the beggar experienced the grace of God in Christ, it transformed him. It not only healed his physical eyes, the grace 
of God in Christ healed his stony heart. And so really what this story is all about, it's about the gospel. It's about the gospel that tells us that Jesus Christ came to take away all our sins. He came to forgive us of our sins and to give us power to live the Christian life on a daily basis. John the Apostle says in 1 John 3, verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. My question this morning is, are you appropriating that today as a Christ follower? Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And so we no longer have an excuse to live according to the world or the flesh of the devil because Jesus came to liberate us. He came to set us free. My question also is this. Do you delight in grace like the beggar delighted in grace or like the Pharisees? Do you despise grace? Every person should respond to God's grace with Delight, And for those who taste and see that the Lord is good, as the psalmist says, they will all bear good fruit to the glory of God and reap a bountiful harvest. Young people, especially high school seniors who you move on to your next stage in life, my promise to you is this. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the woman who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the seat of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight, her delight, is in the law of the Lord. If you desire to live a, a life that is filled with blessing, walk with Jesus. Walk with Jesus. And if you don't believe me, find someone this morning with gray hair and ask them, you prove to me that walking with Jesus is worth it. I will guarantee you If they're a follower of Christ, they will say it's worth it all. Walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. I can also promise you that if you live like the world, if you live according to the dictates of the flesh, or you live according to the wiles of the devil, I promise you, you will live a miserable, hopeless, helpless life that will result in decisions that will not only dishonor God, that will dishonor your parents and dishonor your relatives, And you will be miserable. And so the the path this morning is let us delight in grace. Let us respond appropriately to grace. All for the glory of God. For those this morning who despise the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. There awaits eternal punishment for refusing to place personal trust in Jesus. Ultimately at the end of the day. You will bear the weight of all your sin for all eternity. And so do you allow Jesus to bear the brunt for all your sin? Or do you take your sin upon yourself and suffer the consequences for all eternity? I mentioned to Jason, I didn't know if I'd have the guts to do it. I still don't know if I have the guts to do it. We're going to do it. Will you sing with me? Amen.